we created spoofed packet, but with the source address that belongs to that network and send it from outside. Right. Okay. And try to see if they would say like, hey, this <coughs> IP address belongs to me. How can this come outside or from outside my network? For a single day, we found 14.4 million trace routes that have one or more hops uh, with okay. 240/4. So that was like yeah, a hallelujah, hallelujah <laughs> <laughs> moment that okay, we can actually see uh, this address space internally used by someone. We are starting on a good note then. Yeah. <laughs> my guest today is Cassie Malone. PhD in cybersecurity and research engineer here at the RIPE NCC for the past two years, during which time he's written a bunch of RIPE Labs articles and continued to pursue research on source address validation, DNS manipulation, and many other topics. As we all know, the internet is far from foolproof in its design. Whether by accident or on purpose, people using and operating the internet either don't do things they should do or do do things they shouldn't do all the time. With that in mind, a lot of Cassium's work seems to involve coming up with ways to test whether the internet is operating as it ought to and developing analyses and tools that help determine whether that's the case. I got to talk to Cassim in more detail about his work and also about the role that Ripe Atlas plays for internet researchers in the field. I'm Alan Davies, the Ripe Labs editor, and this is the Ripe Labs podcast. We actually started internet measurements or, or, or like this uh, field of research in 2006 and seven. Right. Okay. Seven or eight, I would say. And the first experience I had was some predecessor to Ripe Atlas. It's a project called Pinger at okay. Stanford University Lab. It's uh, called Slack. Mm-hmm. And I I worked on IP geolocation. Okay. Uh, using yeah, it, it had similar kind of probes. But what's interesting to me is that IP geolocation is still unsolved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there's still problems. <laughs> so this was 2007. <laughs> so there's still papers coming out. Yeah. And, and still people can't get it right. So that's in uh, 2007, and you were at uh, Slack. I think end of six. Uh, I went there at 2007. Right. Okay. Uh, Slack. Uh, it's a Stanford Linear Accelerator Center Physics uh, Research Lab. I worked. There there as a researcher, research scientist, doing internet measurements. Then I went to, did my master's uh, mm-hmm. from NC State in computer networking okay. in the US as well. And then I did PhD in cybersecurity from yep. Delft University to Delft. I never, <laughs> no I could never <laughs> leave internet measurement uh, when I started. Yeah. I think that one of your papers on Ripe Labs does come out of that earlier uh, research that you were doing. The um, the source SAV paper yeah. or the SAV, the source address validation yes, yeah, article, yeah. that was kind of gist of my PhD. So I looked at source address validation, DDoS attacks, which networks allow source address validation and which network can be used by the attackers to launch a DDoS attack. So I looked at various methodologies to find these networks and then yeah one of the paper was uh, sending notifications and seeing if they would actually uh, implement SAV in their networks and that would actually reduce the vantage points from which spoofing can happen and spoofing is the one of the requirements for the DDoS attacks. Okay. That was my PhD work and that again required internet measurements to measure various vantage points and figure out how, because the problem with this is you need something internal in the network. So you, 
it's like what Atlas does, but Atlas does not do spoofing measurements. I could not use Atlas because yeah, for to measure you have to send a spoofed packet. Right. Okay. And uh, when I talk with Robert and others, they said like yeah, it's borderline unethical. But you need a vantage point inside a network to send a spoof packet to know if the network allows spoofing or not. Okay, so you're essentially testing from within the networks to see if they do source address validation. Yeah, but I also looked at, so can you send a spoofed packet with the source address which belong to that network from outside? Mm-hmm. So that was also one paper that I worked with Amache and others. So we created spoofed packet, but with the source address that belongs to that network and send it from outside. Right, okay. And tried to see if they would say like, hey, this <coughs> IP address belonged to me. How can this come outside or from outside my network? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like yeah, the nice. source address is me. And somebody from outside saying that this packet is originating outside my network. So do they actually look at it? So that was like one of the studies. But also like from inside spoofing uh, an address space that does not belong to that AS. So my core study was that, but this is a paper that I worked on with uh, Maciej and others. So I was a co-author in that. But the first author papers were basically trying to look at different methodologies to see if you can send a spoofed packet with a source that does not belong to that IP, uh, that AS. So if you have an AS and there is an IP space allocated to that AS, can you create a packet that does not belong to that AS and um, with a source address outside that AS mm-hmm. and send a packet from this AS? So that means that if they block it, that means they check yeah. every packet that's going outside their network and say like, hey, this IP range does not belong to us, so it cannot originate from our AS. So the RFC says they should block that packet or drop that packet before it leaves their network. But they don't do it. And that's what the attackers use. Uh, So I looked at this kind of things. Internet measurement was main focus there as well, but completely different angle than, than what I'm doing now. So we jumped right to a case where Atlas was no use to you. Yeah, <laughs> Atlas was no well, use. Clearly, you were already Atlas. aware of Atlas. Yeah, I was, I was. I was. I used Atlas in in some other work. Uh, um, so I co-authored a paper where we look at the lease time. So when you get an IP address mm-hmm. uh, from your ISP, so how long uh, each network uh, have uh, or each host have that IP before it changes. So yeah. we looked at the DHCP lease times and there uh, we used Atlas data uh, to basically validate the methodology. So we did like five minute pings uh, mm-hmm. to all the networks every five minutes. And then we were looking at if the IP does not respond to multiple requests and then it starts to respond. So we were like, okay, this is how long that IP was active on one machine. Right, okay. And then you can see the patterns, okay. This is, so for, for instance, for Germany, it was a very interesting case that every 24 hours, you see all the IPs go down, mm-hmm. and then they would come back up. So we later found from German ISPs that be, due to privacy, they only keep the IP addresses for 24-hour time. So every 24 hours, they change all the IP addresses. So I've used Atlas uh, previously, but for different reasons. Yeah. Another area that you've looked into that's is really interesting uh, involves DNS manipulation. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into the research you did, just to give a really simple outline, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the normal process here is 
you plug a, a domain name into a browser, the browser asks a DNS resolver for the IP address for that domain name, and if the resolver has the information cached, then job done. But if not, it has to send the query onto a DNS server, right? Yeah. The resolver, when it does not find mm -hmm. the IP address, it queries the root server, and root server sends back a referral to the TLD. Um, so, and then that referral has the authoritative address to the TLD. So, for example, ripe.net, it would send you, it would uh, not look at the, the first part, so it would drop ripe and that just send the referral to .net. So, yeah. it has a referral to the .net and then the resolver would go to .net and then it would ask for ripe.net and then it would, like, the query goes further down. Mm -hmm. There's that whole recursive process. Yeah, the whole recursive process starts. Okay, and then in this article on RiveLabs that you wrote about DNS room manipulation, uh, you're looking back at this case where this whole process breaks down for users in Mexico back in 2021. Yeah, November right. 2021, Manu wrote on DNS operations mailing list that users in Mexico are unable to reach WhatsApp.net mm -hmm. because of the potential uh, route leak. And uh, to get to their authoritative reply, they're sent to the K-Route in China and getting an incorrect authoritative response from the K-Route in China. But it was not getting from K-Route in China, but it was actually uh, middle boxes that were responding. So that's what he found, right? So in like in summary, he basically for WhatsApp.net. Uh, so there was a a, a, a BGP route leak. Mm -hmm. So that means the K root instance in China. So the traffic previously was not going to K root yeah. instance in China. So it was still getting affected, but only for the Chinese uh, users and their uh, meta services are unavailable. So WhatsApp does not work in China, right? Yeah, it's the censorship by the country in itself. Mm -hmm. But what happened in this case that there was a BGP route leak and now the traffic from Mexico uh, started to go towards China to get an authoritative reply for WhatsApp.net. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, what he observed is yeah, that there was a bogus reply. And what was more interesting for me that some of the replies had an IP address that actually belonged to Twitter.com. So you ask for WhatsApp.net and you get a reply for Twitter. Yeah. And then, of course, then WhatsApp, uh, would not work because, yeah, you, you have an incorrect IP address. So, so where is that middle box that's sending the? Yeah, that's hard reply? to say. That's somewhere in the path. So we like can assume that it is somewhere in China or it's Great Firewall of China that's doing something, but we cannot be sure. It's somewhere in the path between Mexico and the root instance in. In China, because now the BGP is saying that this is your closest yeah. app, right? That's what happened. The, the root leak is basically just BGP advertising, like, hey, you can reach this instance uh, through this AS, which is like an upstream of uh, uh, China Telecom. I think. Okay. So now all of a sudden, previously the the path was different. Yeah. Now. Because this is Anycast addresses, so it's just one IP address, mm -hmm. right? So previously it was going somewhere else. I didn't check where it was going, but <laughs> previously somewhere else. But now BGP is saying that this is the best path. And now all of a sudden, everybody uh, in Mexico in this case, and we also found that in US and Africa and some African countries, they think the best path to re reach the K-Route is 
in the instance that the source is in China. So all of them start going towards China. So there is something in the middle where these middle boxes are. Yeah. We do not know exactly which AS or where they are, but they are somewhere in the path. Now they look at the root server query and they respond with a bogus reply. Mm -hmm. And the way we figured out that this is a bogus reply is that root server never gives an authoritative reply. So in this case, A or Quate reply would always give a referral to the TLD. It would say like this is .net or .com, but it would never say Facebook.com has this IP address. So that's how we figured out. So once we start getting this for a probe, then we say, okay, uh, we have detected something in the path between this probe and the root server. So just to make things absolutely crystal clear, uh, in terms of that DNS process as we described it just a minute ago, this is all happening at that point between the DNS resolver and the root server. Yeah. That's where that's where there is something there is a yeah. middle box that uh, intercepts the query and uh, so it, it basically sees the query going towards the root server. Mm -hmm. It intercepts and it sends a response back. But what it's doing is it's rather than it sending the uh, uh, TLDs, mm -hmm. it responds with an authoritative answer. Yeah, as if it was a name server. Yeah, yeah. As okay. it's it's if it's a name server for, yeah. for instance, Facebook.com or Ripe.net. And that gave you their signature to yeah. say, oh, a root server would never behave like that. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so then in this case, it's it's something which is intercepting and rewriting mm -hmm. response back. What's the reason for setting up one of these middle boxes in the first place? Why why did somebody do this? Is it so, just to disrupt things? No, I think <laughs> so. We did not fully investigate that why this was happening, mm -hmm. but from uh, one of the hypotheses that we had is for censorship, and the reason we think is that in some cases we saw that uh, the these middle boxes won't won't get triggered for, uh, for instance, Ripe.net but you would see a bogus response for when you query facebook.com or google.com. So from the same probe, you would see uh, which for ripe.net, the response is the, uh, the referral to the TLDs, mm -hmm. but for facebook.com or uh, google.com, you would see an authoritative answer. Interesting. So that's one hypothesis that it's basically doing censorship, but it could be doing anything else as well. So we never actually, one of the ideas that I'm exploring with the students from a university in Turkey is to try out different websites and see if you can trigger. So in some cases we see, um, for instance, in this case, like a response when you query uh, Facebook or Google, but uh, maybe if you query, for example, banks, or you query local newspapers or international newspapers, maybe it's, it's triggering for different domains. So one of the ideas that I had was, can we use different kind of popular domains that can have censorship or other malicious uses? And can we see if these middle boxes uh, get triggered for that? But this is still an ongoing research. 
So what was the experimental setup like there in, in Ripe Atlas? So we set up a series of 312 non-recursive DNS measurements towards all root server letters with alternating IP version, transport protocol, query types, and domain names. And they were run twice per day from all connected Ripe Atlas probes. So that was right. around 11,000 probes uh, when we set up this experiment. And uh, uh, we did a paper later where we looked at like six months or so of data mm -hmm. uh, just to also observe if uh, we can find uh, uh, how long these kind of things happen and if these disruptions. So one of the things it, with this kind of disruption is that it's very intermittent. So you won't notice maybe. And that's that, that could be one of the reasons that this has not been reported mm. a lot because, yeah, it, it's probably very intermittent, and then you get the response in the next refresh. And, right, uh, yeah. And then the local cache might uh, store the correct response, and then it would be serving till the cache expires. Now that you know what to, uh, what to look for in these cases, I assume the research can kind of go from there. Yeah, so it's still running, ongoing. We added a few more domains to it. Okay. And uh, later this year, we are planning to build some prototypes around it. So you can actually have a visualization from which probe to which root server we are seeing interceptions in real time uh, using Atlas. So we will build some dashboards and visualizations. That's like one of the ongoing effort. And we will also collect other domains that people think might be interesting. Mm -hmm. The idea with working with the um, yeah, students um, in Turkey uh, is to also see if we can find other interesting domains for each country, for instance. Uh, um, uh, and then uh, maybe we have a pool of domains that we want to query and we can also optimize like how uh, do we want to do twice a day or once per day or like once a month. Mm. So frequency we would adjust, but it's like one of the ongoing efforts that we're gonna hopefully by end of this year. We will have a processing pipeline and a visualization where you can see it in the real time as well. Okay, so let's move on now to another really interesting topic that you've worked on and that we've seen in Ripe Labs articles, uh, specifically the article on 240-4. Just to give a little bit of background here again, in a nutshell, uh, there's this certain block of IPv4 address space uh, that's reserved for future use. So people shouldn't be using those addresses, but it turns out they are. So what's the deal with this particular region of IPv4? So the long-time internet users may recall this as the class E right. address space. And uh, yeah, these are 200, around 268 million addresses that were reserved for future. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they were never classified or they were never given any other status. There were two ITF drafts. One proposed to reclassify this block in 2008 as a unicast address space, which can be subsequently used as private or public. Another draft said that maybe change the status of this address block from future use to limited use for large private internets. Mm -hmm. But none of them succeeded, and the opponents uh, noted that uh, this even these millions of addresses are uh, drop uh, in the ocean yeah. and it would be quickly uh, consumed given uh, 
the requirements uh, for uh, uh, more and more space for IPv4. And it's better for people to actually move towards IPv6 space, uh, which uh, uh, is not going anywhere, uh, sure. at least for the moment. <laughs> yeah. So what was the initial signal here that, that brought you to investigate this? So I've seen bunch of posts on mailing lists, I think one on nano mailing lists and some blog posts that that alluded to this fact that there are people who are internally using 240 slash 4 within their networks. And Rive Atlas becomes then an interesting uh, measurement platform because there you can see what's also uh, wherever our Atlas probes are, what's internal by using Traceroute. Uh, so you can see the internals of the network before it actually goes towards the upstream providers and the global internet. Mm-hmm. And like when we investigated, we didn't see any use of 240-4 in the global routing table. So there were like some pointers saying that internally people are using it, but there were not any particular studies mm-hmm. that would pinpoint which users or how they are using it. So the initial cue was just, just yeah, again, reading Nano, I think, and some other mailing lists and some blog posts which were uh, yeah, claiming that yeah. they have seen uh, 240 slush for being used internally by different networks. So again, what was the kind of setup here? How did you, how did you start to investigate? So we just looked at the passive data yeah. on, on just one single day for ping... DNS and traceroute yeah. in Ripe Atlas dataset. And we did not find anything in ping and DNS, um, but we only found um, uh, 240 slash 4 uh, or IP addresses belonging to 240 slash 4 mm-hmm. IP range in traceroute. So for a single day, we found 14.4 million traceroutes that have one or more hops uh, with okay. 240 slash 4 IPv4 address. So that was like yeah, a hallelujah, hallelujah <laughs> moment that, okay, we can actually see uh, this address space internally used by someone. Yeah. Uh, right. So then we started investigating who is using this internally, and we found um, two of the Amazon ASs, <coughs> uh, which contained most of the trace routes. Uh, internally uh, using this uh, address space. Again, we did not find any instance of in the global routing table. Yeah. And these were first few hops where we saw this uh, uh, being used by them. We also found a trace route between Vodafone and Adobe uh, where uh, the one of the hops was 240-4, but it was in between these, so it's hard to say uh, if one of the upstream providers uh, of these uh, ASs have it or if um, Adobe, for instance, uh, is uh, using this space internally. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, could, we did not have a concrete evidence of, of that because it was somewhere uh, in the path, but yeah. not close enough to either of the ASs. So, so is it, I mean, what... What's the problem if they use internally? So, like, if you move away from RFCs and the one of the issues is if a lot of people start using it and then it starts to get leaked in the routing table, then it becomes a major issue. Okay. And that's where the RFCs bound us to use address space as intended. And if you move away uh, from the recommendations, then it 
can become a major problem. Mm. And uh, yeah, and yeah, if if people start leaking it in the routing table, and then all of a sudden a lot of uh, different EASs uh, uh, might be originating this space, and then yeah, it's it's just gonna create some mess. Okay. But yeah, if you look at the downtime, then the downtime would be only for people who actually wants to originate this. But then again, the internet community is bound by RFCs, and uh, and those are the ones that are kind of uh, keeping us uh, uh, or making sure the internet works as intended. Bringing this back to Ripe Atlas a little bit, you made an interesting distinction there that you were using passive measurements here. Um, and it's a distinction that we didn't make before. So before when you were talking about the um, the case of uh, DNS root manipulation, then you're actually queuing up active measurements, right? Yeah. To fire at, you know, these particular um, domains. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so we used, uh, so, so those we actually did active measurements. In this case as well, we later on tried to do yeah. active measurements yeah. from these um, ASs and the, the idea in that. So let, let me just go back. Yeah. So there are two yeah. types, right? There is active measurements where we have like a potential hypothesis and we want to test it out, right? So that there it comes like, okay, can we look at this question by starting a new measurement? But in, in a lot of cases, there are already measurements that have happened in the past that can already tell the story. So you don't have to generate more data. Um, for the DNS case, we, want, we had to generate data because there are domains that could be sensitive. And our hypothesis was that this is happening because of censorship. So that's why we took Facebook and Google. That's like uh, for in some countries, um, yeah, they are uh, uh, censored. So people in those countries cannot uh, use these services. Uh, and then we use ripe.net as a baseline because we hypo our hypothesis was if ripe.net is also, uh, if there is a, a middle box that is intercepting also ripe.net, then that middle box just intercepts everything. But if there is a middle box that does not intercept ripe.net but intercepts the query going towards Facebook or Google, that means that this middle box is basically... Um, you're doing some censorship. So that's why we had to actively generate data in that case because we wanted to test out our hypothesis. Um, we already had a clue because Manu posted or did his initial investigation to make a claim and he found out that the queries are actually going towards an instance of Kroot in China using the instance ID. So every time you query an instance, you can also get back what's called an SID which identifies which instance uh, the query went, right? So he could see that, yeah, the Kroot instance that's getting triggered was in, in China. Um, so we also recorded instance IDs uh, in our case as well. Um, I really like that. I like that, that that way of conceptualizing the difference between active measurements and passive measurements as the former being more about hypothesis testing. And when you're talking about this in terms of looking at trace routes one day and you see so many million going through this yeah. block that they should not be going through, really, um, how is that set up? So I looked everything, right? So, oh, right, okay. Uh, so, yeah. like, I took one entire day of data set and 
like my hypothesis was was is there anyone who is using 240/4 so i took every trace route on that one particular Just anything that had been run by yeah, anybody on anybody atlas that on day anybody on atlas that day ah okay and interesting what was interesting was we found 240/4 very close to the original originating uh, ripe atlas probe so that means like first few hops had the 240/4 so in this case we can then say for sure that this is uh this as is internally using this address space because if it's somewhere in the path after some other uh ASs, then it's hard to say okay which one is exactly using but it's if it's first or second hop or third hop uh and all the hops next to that address is also belongs to the originating AS. Then it's more likely that that AS is internally using that address space because from the trace route hops we can say that it actually never left that AS. It's still in the origin AS, and we see an address space that belongs to two forty slash four address space. Okay, and that but that of course bring, raises another point that you do actually make in the paper that you know if you've got a bunch of probes in Amazon Networks, like just, you know, <laughs> ASEs, um, then you're more, much more likely to spot this kind of yeah. behavior for those networks, right? Yeah. So, so there is a so, bias. Yeah, so that that's a very clear bias because we had uh, a lot of probes in the Amazon AS, but there are there could be other networks which are internally using it. So I don't want to single out Amazon in this case. Yeah. Because it's it's an inherent bias that uh, that probes are not distributed everywhere, um, and that's only what we can see from the probes. So there are a lot of probes in Amazon, and we could find out using those probes. But there could be other networks that are internally using it, and because they never make it to the routing table, so it's uh, yeah uh, we don't have any evidence. Um, but yeah. If we don't have a probe and some network is internally using it, we do not have a methodology okay. to find those networks. So the bias is based on where our probes were hosted. These were the only networks where we could find a 240-4 in the hub. So the two papers that we've focused on a lot now are both papers where you really use Ripe Atlas a lot. As an internet researcher, how useful a tool do you find Ripe Atlas to be for so, internet research? We can use WIS or BGP data in particular, and that gives us the, the control plane, mm -hmm. right? But what Atlas gives us is the data plane. So how is it actually playing out? And Atlas becomes very useful because you have vantage points across several ASCs, across several countries, and you could do two things, right? You can create a measurement from that probe, towards a bunch of other places. And if you are a network provider, you want to see, okay, how does, like, how traffic from Uzbekistan or Tajikistan or Russia or China reaches my network, you can actually create measurements towards your target. Mm -hmm. And you can use trace routes, you can use ping, you can look at the delays, you can look at the upstream providers, and you can uh, actually also use these kind of measurements to see if you can somehow optimize and for people in those countries um, have a better route towards your services. So there is a lot of investigations that you can do as a target, but you can also generate measurements towards 
if you are uh, a network operator in one of these countries and you want to see how other operators are reaching those services. So that can also help you uh, generate traffic from those uh, uh, RIPE Atlas probes in, uh, in your competitors, for instance, or a different country. So if you want to see how your neighboring countries are, are doing it. So it, it gives you a lot of different questions that you can answer. Uh, because like one of the things that, that Atlas gives or the power of Atlas is the vantage points are inside these networks, right? So you can always do like using one host, multiple queries towards internet now with tools like ZMap. I think you can do in, in half an hour or something, scan the entire V4 space. But that's just one vantage point. But if you want to see from various vantage points, that's where the power of Atlas comes. But then the downside is that you cannot do massive amount of internet measurements because the more the vantage points, the more uh, or, or, or you generate massive data as well. So you have to be really careful in curating an experiment that you get a desired results with that many vantage points or use as many or use selective vantage points. So all of these then becomes a question. Uh, that how would you like to measure something um, or your network or services that you're offering. So if you're a CDN, you want to see how users in X country or Y country connecting to your services. Yeah. So all of these questions can be answered, but then you have to curate or prepare uh, before you start these measurements because otherwise you'll use a lot of credits or you will create massive data set um, and there would be a lot of re redundant maybe data in there or yeah, data that's not useful to your research question. But RIPE Atlas does give you, 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 it does have the flexibility to curate things in that way and to fine tune your measurements yeah. so that, you know, as long as you know what you're doing, yeah. you can do quite detailed uh, exactly. experiments for the yeah. Um, and, and what are the, it's, it's always kind of interests me when I talk to you, I mean, you're part of a certain small subset of people in the world who can, you know, investigate and research about this stuff. And obviously you guys all talk about Atlas all the time, but to the wider community and even to like, you know, outside your own circle of, of uh, you know, colleagues who are researchers and whatnot, where do you see... Um, how did I put it when I wrote it down? <laughs> what other things can you do with Atlas that maybe are not being done by that many researchers or not research aren't aware of or making use of? So I, I think there is a lot of use cases of Atlas. So first of all, if you go to Google Scholar, for instance, mm -hmm. and put ripe Atlas, it's like thousands of paper yeah. that come out, right? So, so either papers or people or researchers have looked at Atlas to do validation of their methodologies or actually do certain kind of measurements uh, using Atlas. But a lot of these, a lot of times these measurements are just one-offs and people prove a point and move on. Mm -hmm. So I, one of the idea that I had was to actually go through not maybe all the papers, but start to somehow summarize uh, these measurements and try to find those measurements that are have happened in the past or people have used Atlas for and they're like either uh, in the form of labs articles or, or papers, research papers and then they're forgotten mm -hmm. um, to repurpose them. The uh, idea then is to find 
like these fine-tuned measurements, so like two certain targets, so RV measuring Anycast addresses, RV measuring IXPs, RV doing some kind of uh, analysis for PGP, ping, all kinds of different things that it's been used and create these curated data sets. So I think one of the missing elements that could really enhance the use case of Atlas is to create data sets for a specific question. So uh, data set, like if you have the measurement IDs, you can download this data and this is all of the data set measuring CDNs. So we are working on a paper uh, to basically collect all of these measurements together, explain different use cases of these measurements, and then um, then give it out to the community. The cases that you've looked at over the years as a researcher, you know, looking at when things go kind of wrong on the internet or when weird stuff happens, um, are all extremely interesting. What's your next story? Now I'm looking at, for instance, SEE countries. So that's okay. like our conference that's coming up. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and what I want to see is IPv6 adoption, for instance. Okay. And we see for uh, Greece have done really wonders compared to the rest of the countries in mm. the region. And I want to also see how uh, we can build something around RIPE Atlas and RIS data set to tell a story about how V6 adoption is working in these countries. Last year, uh, a new instance of KRoot was um, deployed in... Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan. Uh, uh, a, um, a year before, I think, in, in Kazakhstan. Right, yeah. And, and you were talking about maybe looking at how these new instances have... So, yeah, one of the uh, impact of these new instances could be that if we see interception from probes previously, uh, we might see less interception. And my hypothesis is that once there is a local instance, the traffic is not going towards uh, an instance where somewhere in the path there is a middle box. So when we did work on CAPIF uh, article last year, we saw uh, the Central Asian countries have a huge dependency on Russia. And probes in Russia are one on the higher side when we look at overall interception from different probes. So uh, uh, even though I don't have like a clear evidence where these middle boxes are, but just looking at like which probes saw more interception, I think that there might be middle boxes in Russia. Um, and the hypothesis which I want to test out is like once we have the local instance do we see less less interception? So once you have an, an instance of Kairut in Central Asia, yeah. then the Central Asian countries become less, the towards paths don't go through Russia. To Russia, then. yeah. So they would actually go towards their local instance. And then, yeah, if there is no middle box between the local instance and the, the Atlas uh, probe uh, hosted in those countries, then those, uh, uh, yeah those probes would see less interception. So that's something which I'm going to investigate uh, uh, later this year and Excellent. see if we can find actual evidence for when there is a local instance uh, in this country. Very nice. Kasim, thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. Thank you so much for uh, having me. They're cool, man. Thanks for that. Thank you.